I love a good story, especially when it's a God story. I love to hear how God takes ordinary women and does extraordinary things in, for, and through them. Friends, I'm your host, Jody Caracosta, ministry leader at Somebody Cares America and International, author and traveler on this journey of faith. I encourage you to take a moment to like or follow this podcast on your favorite streaming platform so you won't miss the stories of any of my amazing guests. Today, I'm talking with Marie Umidi. If you know anything about the early days of Christian music, you'll be interested to know that Marie sang with the Imperials and Russ Taff. In addition to pastoring a church with her husband, Joe, for 13 years, Marie wrote a fabulous play, The Man Called Jesus, that has been performed in countries around the world and been seen by tens of thousands of people. She loves serving the Lord through the gift of hospitality and is the proud mother of an adult son and grandmother of three. Welcome, Marie. Thank you, Jody. Marie, you were born and raised in Michigan and were drawn to the arts and performing at a young age. Tell us a little about those years and how your big voice drew a handsome man who is now your husband of 50 years into your life. When I was four or five years old, my parents lived out in the countryside and there weren't many kids to play with. And I was the last of five children. So I was alone a lot because all my other siblings were much older than me. So I would use my imagination and pretend that I would set up a stage out in the backyard. And I, I talked my mom into getting some old, giving me some old sheets and I would string them up on the, in between the trees. And then I would pay the friends that lived in town that I knew. And then the ones out in the country that I knew to come and see my productions. You'd pay them. <laughs> I would pay them each a penny if they would come and see, because I wanted to have an audience. (laughs) And um, I don't even remember what kind of plays I put on. I just knew that there was something in me that I wanted to give to others. And I knew it had to do with the arts. So that's how the dream of the production started. But I've always been a singer. Um, And so that's one of the things I did um, in my little backyard stage was sing songs to them. (laughs) That's great. And so you continued doing that on into high school and college, and and eventually that attracted your husband-to-be. I studied music in college and was involved in um, a lot of what we would call summer stock theater in my area and always loved musical theater. My husband and I met while we were both still in university, and I had come through an extremely troubled um, relationship before I met him. In fact, it, I was married before and divorced. And um, I was on the that cusp of a of horrible marriage when I met him. And so I had a lot of baggage with me. Neither of us were born again believers. Um, but I was working in a small theater and he saw me performing. We were doing a wonderful production. And so we just kind of hit it off. And um, bouncing from a divorce and horrible marriage, it was not easy to to let myself fall into love again and to trust. Uh, I eventually allowed myself to trust again, and he was an amazingly gracious man, so it wasn't really hard. It was all my issues. Um, but then after we got married, it's interesting because we were only married for six months, and we were on a vacation trip like a honeymoon trip to Canada and while we were traveling on a ferry boat on our way to Canada this minister came up to us and he shared the gospel with us and he said I have a feeling that the two of you are 
hungry for something spiritual. And we were, we had been on um, a soul safari, soul searching safari. And had, we had been studying Eastern uh, religion and Zen Buddhism and Hinduism, right? That, that was during the time when um, the Beatles were recording and they were into Hare Krishna, all that crazy stuff from India. So we were just exploring all that. And he led us both to the Lord. Wow. Just right there on the ferry. Well, actually, we had so much to talk about when the ferry docked in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. He said, well, we're not finished, are we? And we said, no, we were both in tears. And so mm-hmm. he invited us to come sit in his car. And about two, two hours later, um, we both prayed the sinner's prayer, accepted Jesus. And my son was four at the time from that other marriage. And so it was a it was a wonderful way to begin a new marriage and um, raising a son who had been traumatized as well as I had been yeah. from the former relationship. So as you started growing in Christ together, what were some of the changes that you started experiencing in your life and in your marriage? Well, the first change, major change, was that when I met my husband, we were coming out of the hippie lifestyle and we were both into like Mother Earth. How can I explain it? I don't know, because I'm talking to a whole generation that probably knows nothing about this. But one of our dreams was to um, to build a, our own home and live off the land. And this was in the 60s. And we had, a, no, 70s, excuse me. We had a lot of problems with um, what today has become big pharma and big agriculture. We wanted to have pure food, clean food. And so our goal was you know, we're going to, we're going to raise our own chickens. We're going to raise our own vegetables. We're going to da, 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 da. Well, as soon as we got saved, my husband turned around and said, honey, I'm going into the ministry. And that was all new to me because I wanted, uh, I wanted to live on the farm and be a farm girl. So that was difficult. And, um, he, he, he wanted to go into the ministry, but the man who led us to the Lord said, um, son, uh, don't go into the ministry um, until you've had a really good education. And even then, he said, um, you want to practice many, many years until, you know, you you feel like you're ready. But so he, he really coached us through those early years of uh, divinity school. And we pastored uh, small churches in Canada at the beginning. And that's where the, the writing of the production play, uh, the of the production, The Man Called Jesus, started. Um, While we were in Canada during those 12 years as well, I recorded lots of music and original albums. But my great love and my deep love was theater and, and, and the musical theater. Because I was a music major in the churches that we were pastoring at that time, I did all the choir directing. I, at one point, I had five choirs this is the Baptist church, you know, and every front, you have a choir, your choir membership from the time you're in the cradle to the grave. <laughs> so I had all these different aged choirs and I wanted my senior choir to do something that would incorporate all the different ages of the people of the other choirs. And so I came upon an idea of doing a play about the life of Jesus. It was Easter and I didn't like any of the cantatas that were being um, produced and advertised back then. So I thought, well, Lord, 
I think I can write my own. I mean, it's just putting together the gospel story, right? What's difficult about that? It's already written. So I put together a real simple elementary production that last year that we pastored in Canada. And then when we moved to Virginia, and I hear this is the other the reason we came to Virginia, and stop me if I'm talking too much. I want to go back and just talk a little bit about, I mean, here you were, you wanted to be a farm girl, and all of a sudden you find yourself a pastor's wife. And, you know, being a pastor's wife, a pastor and a pastor's wife is can be challenging because the expectations that congregations place on ministers is, you know, can be very unrealistic. Very unrealistic. And yeah, just share some of the, I know that, you know, it's obviously a growing experience too, when you're put in a fishbowl, but just share a little bit about what God did in and through you and during that season. Yeah. The initial challenge that I faced while he was still in divinity school and we were, we were kind of like helping out at the local church. We weren't really senior pastors, but the initial challenge that I faced was because I had had such a troubled and difficult marriage. Um, it felt like a stain and it felt like something that I didn't really want to talk about because it was still very raw and painful. And I never felt like I would be worthy to be a pastor's wife because I carried, I had all this baggage with me. Yeah. And uh, he didn't have any of that. So um, so I had a real it was a real growing experience for me just to learn to accept myself and my path, which was so different from his. Yeah. Oftentimes accepting God's forgiveness for ourselves is harder than even forgiving other people. Absolutely. Isn't it? Absolutely. Because that, you know, we have these old soundtracks that just keep rolling and praying, playing in our mind about what we are and what we aren't. Yeah, I know for myself, sometimes my my brain will go off on tangents that I know are not of the Lord. And I'll have to just stop right there and say, I'm taking this thought captive to the obedience of Christ Jesus. And I'm tearing down everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God in my life. And it's amazing when we declare the word of God in our life, how immediate our victory is in Christ. That doesn't mean it's over forever. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We have yeah, to do it again and again. Battle. But <laughs> so all of this time, you're also writing music and recording music and 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 singing, performing. I mean, this is the early days of of really Christian pop music. Exactly. It it was. In fact, some of your listeners, depending on their age, they may remember Chuck Gerard. Mm, yeah. They may remember Keith Green. Mm-hmm. They were a couple of our heroes. I mean, it was the early, early days. It was the beginning of the Jesus movement in California. And we were riding the cusp of that. And so, yeah, I started writing my own and just had so much that I wanted to express and to say because our salvation was truly remarkable. I mean, it turned both of our lives around completely. Sometimes, you know, you get into your Christian walk slowly, but we were boom, we were right there. And so we had we had a lot of stuff to process. <laughs> Yeah. It sounds like the Lord really brought a man of God there who walked you through that. And how important that is when a new believer accepts Christ, that they've got someone who's there to love them and lead them and disciple them. I mean, we actually went through eight years of school together. We went through four, the four first four years of his undergrad at a Baptist college. And then we went through the next four years of studying for his doctoral degree 
in ministry. And so during those eight years, there was all this processing going on until we finally took a church as for our, you know, our first church as a, as senior leaders, senior pastors, and that's where the rubber hit the road. (laughs) Yeah. And so I kept myself very busy and so did he. We just learned so much during that time. And I'm thankful because we were just born, you know, born again, young Christians and the churches that we were called to pastor in the eastern part of Canada at the time where we were, not just pastor, but give spiritual leadership to, were mostly made up of older folks. And so it was like, I never appreciated until recently the fact that they welcomed us as brand new 20-something-year-old Christians to lead them. (laughs) These are people who had been in the church all their lives, you know. Yeah, I'm sure it, you brought a, a breath of fresh air and your your gifts. I mean, your amazing gifts, musical and artistic gifts, probably just really uh, enlivened their faith as well. And helped to grow the church back to help. Because we were younger, we drew a lot of young people in. Yeah. So there were a lot of young families that would come in with their young children, and it really revived the church. In fact, by the time we left the first two churches that we were kind of like in apprenticeship under uh, the senior pastor. Um, My gosh, I think that church grew like to over 150 people. We're talking a one-room church in Canada. Wow. And um, so very small beginnings, but the Lord had plans. Then you brought in a play. I mean, you wrote this play. What was that process like for Mm -hmm. you? I mean, you had been singing and writing songs, so I guess it wasn't totally new, the whole creative process, but that's a daunting thing, a play. You've, you're having to visualize where you want everyone to be and what you want everyone to say and all the music behind it and the staging. It's, it's, quite, it's quite a big task. I started very small. I had a small choir. I think there was only 24 people in my choir at that time, but um, you know, the Lord, it, when the Lord does something he doesn't have to start it big. You know, it, it usually starts with a thought or maybe he'll he'll give you just maybe a small picture or a vision of what you want to accomplish. And then it's just a matter of being faithful and prayerfully seeking his will. And this when when I wrote the first like what I would call the outline of the play, it was it was just bones. There was no meat on it hardly at all. It was just kind of a bare skeletal thing. And uh, I fasted for three days because I really wanted to hear from the Lord as to what the what that skeleton would look like, because I knew that that would grow and put on sinew and meat and flesh, and that would just become something much bigger. I knew that instinctively at the beginning, but we started small, and the Lord really led us in that first that first presentation many years ago, it was 1984. And there there was a young man from South Africa who was in, um, in um, my choir. And actually, he was not from South Africa. He was from Nigeria. And he was uh, studying at the local Baptist Bible College in our town. So he was fresh out of Africa, fresh out of Nigeria. And this young man was so spirit-filled. I mean, our little congregation of very polite, quiet, Canadian, older people didn't quite know what to make of him either. And, and he, he had been moving in the gifts of the Spirit, and he had a lot of 
prophetic things that had happened to him when he was saved in Nigeria. So he came in, he, when the first night that I presented this idea, this whole idea for the Passion Play, um, his, he's sitting in the back row, and I'll never forget this, his hand shot up and he said, Mrs. Yumidi, Mrs. Yumidi, God showed me about this play before I left Nigeria. And he showed me that you were going to be writing it and that I was going to be singing in it. And he showed me that you were going to ask me to play Simon from Cyrene. And of course I did. And, um, and then he said something that shocked me in a way, but it didn't shock me because I knew in my spirit that God had bigger plans than what, you know, I could imagine. He said, Mrs. Yumidi, one day, hundreds of thousands of people all over the world will see this production. That was his pr prophecy over it. And it was, it was stunning. It was really stunning because I knew in my spirit that that's what I, I wanted God to do something big because he did such an, such an amazing job in my life in saving me and rescuing me. And I just wanted to do something for his glory. So you had this little production and then yeah. God called you away from Canada to Virginia. He did. He called my husband to Virginia first before I realized that we were going to be moving. Our son at this point was, he's ready to go into his junior year of high school because he was American just like we were. We wanted him to graduate from an American high school so that he could go to American college. So we decided that we would look around and God truly, truly led us to Virginia. I mean, it was like he, he opened up the map and said, here, <laughs> it was that, it was that clear. We came down here and within three days we had found uh, we found a place to rent. We found a school to put our son in and and my husband actually got a job offer in a local church. And so we knew that this was his leading and then it was that was in December of nineteen eighty four. And in uh December of I mean in Easter of nineteen eighty five, we presented the man called Jesus for the first time in Virginia at Kempsville Presbyterian Church, where you were a member. Where I was a member. Yeah, yeah. And I remember seeing, it was it was actually a, a, a musical. It was done very well. And um, I was captivated by it. I was actually a graduate student at the time doing a minor in- I remember in, that. Uh, and Dr. Byertson was our pastor. So I was, uh, I, I couldn't get involved that first year. Um, but I, shortly after that, I did. In fact, I was- a part of the play for five yeah. years, played Mary, the mother of Jesus. Yeah. I played Mary Magdalene one year. And then for several years, I played yeah. Mary of Mary and Martha. And um, they were, uh, it, it was a, an amazing time to see the body of Christ come together because it wasn't just one church. It wasn't just one oh church putting Lord. it on. It was people from all over the region that came in to. Well, when it, when it started out, it was actually one church and then it grew to two churches and then um, the word got out, like you said, and people wanted to come. So they came from several different churches. And that's um, probably about eight years, eight or maybe it was more like 10 years into the ministry. We realized that this was not just a church project. It was a community project. It was a Christian community project. And we started thinking in terms of forming a nonprofit and, um, and being able to broaden our audiences. It got to be a really good production, but you know, it took 30 years to get there. <laughs> yeah. Well, every year you did, you added things, you changed things. And um, 
the Lord really, I mean, you moved it around. I I remember one year that I was, I think you probably did it more than one year, but one year we performed in a big tent on the grounds of the Christian Broadcasting Network and um, the the live animals and everything. We were running around the tent outside and praying it wouldn't rain and, and, and thousands, thousands and thousands of people. I mean, it wasn't just, it wasn't just a one night production. It was, you know, a couple weeks long. That year that we did it, that particular Easter, we saw over 20,000 people come through that tent. Wow. Even in the midst of the rain. And then from there, we went to the um, the local amphitheater, which could hold big audience as well. And the same thing happened. Um, 20, 21,000. It was hard to keep track because um, when you're in such a large facility, you know, and we did, and we chose not to sell all of our tickets. We gave thousands of them away because we had thousands of seats to fill. And so the pastors would, you know, give them to the people who who they knew couldn't afford $10 for a ticket, which back then was considered really expensive for a ticket. Yeah. Well, just, I know the Lord had did many, many miracles behind the stage, as well as in the audience. Share some of the things that you saw the Lord do in putting all of this together. And Miracles, so many miracles. Well, since we're talking about the amphitheater, that night, the night that we were opening at, at this outdoor amphitheater, a huge... I mean, a, a, a perfect storm was coming our way. It, it was supposed to be high velocity winds, tornadoes, uh, hail, you name it, thunder, lightning. And um, we just decided, you know, Lord, you just, you led us this far. It's not time to stop. So we just kept going. And, and at one point during the production, the producers up in the in the amphitheater booth said, you know, this is too dangerous. We have to shut this down because the storm is coming right at us. And they were talking about a very, very dangerous storm. So we shut down everything, all the powered lights and everything um, for about 10 minutes. And um, he was watching the storm. They were all watching the storm in the production booth on the radar. And he said, I don't know what your people out there are doing, but we had all of our intercessors gathered out on outside on the parking lot. And he said, they're doing what they do. And I don't know what it is. Well, they were praying. They were interceding. They were praising. They were singing. They were blowing shofars. They were waving banners. And he said, Marie, we literally watched that storm. The closer that it got to the amphitheater, we literally watched it separate on our radar screen. It separated before it hit us. And a part of it went north, the other part went south or whatever, east, west. But he said, we watched it happen on the screen. And he said, how did your people do that? So that was a miracle to these people because these were all, you know, they were rock and roll people, you know, theater, not theater people even just. um, But um, that was that was a really beautiful miracle. And then, of course, the miracles of people's lives changing. In fact, I was reading through this morning. I just happened to come across a newsletter that we put out. And it was all the testimonies of how this changed the lives of their children, their husbands, the actors who were in it. Um, Their family members got saved. Their neighbors got saved. Um, so, uh, so many people were led to the Lord, so many, and it, it, and it made an impression, strong impression 
because the reality was that none of us were professionals, really. I mean, I had some experience, but everybody were we were we were just volunteers. We were church people, but the spirit of God was so strong in everybody, and that's what made it powerful. We were doing it because of our faith, not because we were getting paid to do it, and it was beautiful. Yeah, I know for me, every time we got to those scenes, particularly of Jesus on the cross, it really reminded me of the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of the resurrection. I think we can get in our Christian life so easily going along and become accustomed to the story. And we need that. We need that fresh. You know, exactly. we, need to, we need to have that that revelation refreshed yeah. every you know, every year <laughs> or more, even more often than that, because that's the power of the gospel and the power of our salvation. Well, I'm sure most of your listeners and of course you are familiar with The Chosen, the the new production that's out. Well, you know, we're talking 30 years ago, there was no such thing out there. But my my main passion was I want people to see Jesus in the flesh and realize that he was no different from us as a man. He was God, but as a man, he had the same issues that we had. You know, he cried, he mourned, he laughed, he danced, he ate, he drank wine with his disciples. And I wanted people to realize the humanness of this Jesus and, and you know, apply that kind of reality to their lives instead of just thinking of Jesus as, oh, God is up there and, you know, he'll never, he can't communicate with me. And da, 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 da. I wanted to bring the reality of Jesus as a person. That's what Robert Klein, who played the role, he did such an amazing job. He did an amazing job. It's not just the gospel. You want Jesus to be real. You want, you want people to say, oh, I love that man. I love Jesus. He was so good. Yeah, and, and approachable and caring and all the things that make him both God and man. So at some point, you realized that the Lord wanted you to start taking this play around the globe. And at that point, it had become a massive production. I mean, you had your nonprofit. So how did God lead you in that? I mean, you can't take, you know, 50 people on the road with a big production unless you've got quite a budget. So what did you do? I'll never forget it. It was 1995. And I had the privilege of attending a missions conference where Dr. Howard Fultz, who was with Regent University at the time, brought in some of the major mission leaders around the world, including Lauren Cunningham, who started YWAM and gosh, so many others that that were just like heroes in the faith to me. And I had never heard of this before, but they outlined for us what we call the 1040 window. And that is the region of the world that is, it's, it, it actually is uh, to the degrees on the, on the world map, it's 10 degrees one way and 40 degrees the other. And it represents the poorest of the poor, the most unreached people on the face of the earth, and the least evangel, well, obviously the least evangelized. And so the focus was if we can reach those nations, and there were several nations, that it kind of stretched from Northern Africa all the way across all of the Middle East, all the way across China and Asia. Uh, and so we just, I, I just made a decision, Lord, 
I want to do my part. I want to reach those people who are totally unreached. And we set some pretty high goals. And um, the first trip that we made internationally was Turkey. And we did take 50 people with us in the cast. We did. Actually, it was 51, count me. And we got, we got into the New York City airport. And um, the people that were working for us in Istanbul, I don't even remember if we had cell phones back then, but somehow they got the word to us that there was a huge crackdown on Christian um, activity in, in the city and that um, people of, from their team, which I think they were YWAMers stationed there, um, had been arrested just for putting the posters up about us coming. We all prayed. We got in a big circle and we prayed. I said, hey, guys, this is it. This is what's happening. What do we do? What does God want us to do? And everybody to the last person said, we're going, you know, God didn't bring us this far to stop. They had raised all their own money. And plus I had some corporate gifts to help with the shipping of all the equipment and everything because we had scads of equipment and just stuff to ship. But when we got into the airport, lo and behold, it was the weekend of an international jazz festival in the city of Istanbul. So there, there were these performers coming in from all over the world with all their cases of instruments, music, uh, sound systems. I mean, the airport was filled. And, and I said to my 51 people, my 50 people, I said, get your stuff, get all your bags that you're responsible for and get behind one of those people. Get in line, get in line with all of these people. Instead of us, you know, being questioned, why are you here? What are you doing here? They, they waved us all through and they said, welcome to the jazz festival. <laughs> and they said, we're coming, you're coming to perform for us, right? And we said, yes, we're coming to perform for you. And oh my gosh, there's so many things that God did. Well, that was that was 1995, and then we went back in 1996, and we trained a team to do the production in 1996 or 97. The man who played Jesus was um, eventually martyred for his faith because he insisted that he would not let anybody stop him from sharing the gospel. And he and two other guys that were in the production with him uh, I think they were two disciples. They were all martyred. Gosh, it was th during that time when there was so many persecutions in Turkey. I, I can't remember quite the year, but it was it was just heart-rendering to hear that, that they had paid the price, the, the ultimate price for their faith. Wow. You started training. Turkey was the first place you trained the local Christian church to put on their own performances, but you took it to a lot of other places too. Some had, you know, the the capacity to do performances full force and then others that you had to use a little more creative means to perform the play with smaller troops. So when we started with the international work, we would look for churches or like, like what we had associations of churches that were willing to work together and pull all their people together for evangelistic outreach. We found them. We went to Russia. We went to Siberia. We went to Ukraine. We went to uh, Romania, um, Nepal, Turkey, and all those places we were able to train full teams to do the full production. Oh, actually, it wasn't the full two and a half hour production like we did it here, but it was a one and a half hour version that used film, a combination of film and um, narration. But it had, you know, full stages of 50 to 70 to 80 people performing and dancing and worshiping. And we would uh, raise the money to give them all the costumes and bring them the makeup that they needed because they couldn't they couldn't find the kind of 
stage makeup that, that we use. They couldn't find it anywhere. And these were very poor communities, but still it was in the 1040 window. And that was our commitment that we would, we would go to the hardest of the hard places where there was the least amount of this type of production happening for outreach. And what did you hear then, coming back from those when they started performing? What, what are some of the stories? We have video of this one performance. I think it was in Siberia where it, it was in one of the halls. They always rented, if they didn't have a big enough church, they, they would go together and rent a hall somewhere in the city. We have a picture of a hall that was as full as you could get it. I think it might have seated around 500 people, 600 people at the most. And they had to close this metal gate to keep people from coming. And mothers were on the other side of the gate handing their babies over, their children over, so that their children could have a chance to see and hear the gospel. It was always phenomenal um, results, phenomenal wow. people coming to the Lord. Oh, I can't tell you all the stories that just, they just go on and on. And most of those churches continued to perform it after we left because we donated all the costumes and the, you know, everything that they needed to perform it. We donated it to them so that they could continue. And many of them you know, there are some that are still doing it, Jody. In fact, last Easter, we we had um, a live performance in Siberia, Yakutsk, Siberia, with wow. Sasha, who, who played Jesus, and now he's become the director, and he's he's found a younger Jesus. But And an interesting thing today, two things happened today that I think it's really remarkable and fits in with this interview. Because you asked me, you know, what were, what were the effects? What happened? Well, the first thing that happened today was I got all of these um, pictures sent to me through Messenger from uh, Kathmandu, Nepal. Now, we trained a team there, and the leader of that team that we uh, assigned, her name was Karmu. She became a full-time missionary. She's been working as a team director of the production since 2000. It's weird, it's 22 years later, and she's still doing it. And she's done it in different cities. She said, we want to be missionaries. So they moved to North India from Kathmandu to North India so they could reach the people in the hard Darjeeling tea gardens where there's so much human trafficking and horrific things going on with parents selling their children just just for you know enough money to buy food, terrible things, and so they have been missionaries. She emailed me um, the beginning of this year, and she said, "Marie, I want to take this production to the village where I was raised." Now she was raised in a Buddhist village, and her father was the Buddhist priest of this village, way up in the Himalayas. He was also a Sherpa, which is the Sherpa guides that take the teens to climb Everest. He was a Sherpa guide, but he was the priest the Buddhist priest. And so when she accepted the Lord, it wasn't because of us. It was some other evangel evangelistic team. She, she accepted the Lord. They kicked her out of the village. They refused to have anything to do with her. This was 23 years ago. This morning, she sent me pictures of their team. They're training a brand new team in her village in Kathmandu, where she was kicked out of to perform the production. Wow. So people there are willing to actually do the production now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like God is just putting the spirit of boldness and, you know, it's, you cannot stop the gospel being spread. You just cannot stop it. In fact, persecution actually speeds it up. Yeah. But here's Carmouche. She's now got a teenage daughter and she's married and she's directing this team. 
And then the second thing that happened was, do you remember Nancy and Bill Brown? Bill was the dean of the School of Communications at Regent, and Nancy was in the production. Well, Nancy was the adulterous woman in the production. She had two uh, teenage daughters that started their roles in the play. Actually, they weren't even teens yet. I think they were preteens. And so these two daughters were in the production as young children, along with their mother. Both of them are in full-time ministry still, but one of the daughters is now in a church in Wisconsin. And she and her husband are reproducing the original stage production of the play in Wisconsin. So today we sent a huge trailer full of all of the props that we have left over from when we did it in Tidewater. Costumes, props, set pieces. I mean, we shoved everything in and we sent it to her because she is now writing her original version of The Man Called Jesus, which is going to be featured this coming Easter. So that's a second generation. So we have second generation here in the United States second and third generations in the world in the 1040 window. Wow. And it, it's just... You just never know what God is going to no. do when you're just obedient. I mean, he gave you this little vision of writing a play for your church, your small church in Canada, and in obedience, God just breathed on it and took it Yeah, and then there everywhere. was the prophetic word of, of the man from Nigeria, Nihi Mahalabi. He said that one day... People from thousands, he used to say hundreds of thousands of people all over the world will see this. That was almost too good to believe. But, you know, it's the greatest story on earth. It's the best story that's ever been told. And so many people, especially even now in our own country. I was talking to somebody today who works in the Chesapeake school system in Virginia here. She said she was not permitted to take a nativity set into her classroom because it violated the the law of the land to bring a nativity set. And so she had to take it home. And she said half of her class had never heard of Jesus before, had never seen a nativity set, didn't even know what it was. Wow. It's right here in Virginia. Yeah, and we're a little bit in the Bible Belt. Yep. Home to the Christian Broadcasting Network. And right here in Chesapeake. And that's why we see so much despair in our young people. I mean, you know, our young people are suicidal and they're searching for identity and and they need to meet the one who created them and gave them a purpose in life. So during COVID, live performances just about everywhere were canceled. How did that impact you personally, the production? Well, it impacted all of our teams around the world, obviously, because it was a pandemic. But yeah, everybody had to shut down. And be very, very careful. So everybody hunkered down. The teams that were in the most difficult areas where supplies were not getting through. And I mean, it was just really tragic. It was really tragic. And we had already stopped holding the major Easter production here in Virginia because (laughs) the man who played Jesus for 23 years turned 64. And he said, Marie... I would give my heart to do this for the rest of my life. But he said, I cannot do it anymore. And it was hard to find a Jesus (laughs) to replace him. So um, at that point, we just shut down the local production and we focused on our teams that were international. So, but obviously we couldn't do much of anything. We raised as much money as we could to help the teams that were in the hardest reach places. It was a difficult time for everybody. It was a difficult time. Just lots of prayer. 
lots of um, seeking the Lord as to how to deal with it all. Every year that I recall, you actually were able to videotape the production. The last production we did on on the big stage here in Virginia was um, filmed by a crew of uh, four high-definition cameras, and we made a film of the stage production and we were had we had a partnership with the Christian Broadcasting uh, International Network that um, if they would um, help me to put it into the languages that they broadcast in, that I would give them the rights to broadcast it each Christmas and each Easter free of charge. Wow, it's a two and a half hour production, so that would you know cost them a lot if they had to pay the rights for that. But we put it into Arabic. Oh, put it into Arabic, Mandarin. Gosh, eight languages during COVID years. That was one thing was that it was still being used on uh, various platforms of broadband broadcasting and social media. That was one thing that I the Lord had had us put it in film, not knowing anything about the pandemic coming. So interesting. You were ahead of the the head of the game again because the big thing now is for live theater to be broadcast live on TV. I mean, you've seen The Sound of Music has been done and several other shows, but the Lord had you do The Man Called Jesus before any of that was happening here. Well, my vision was to start with China. I had such a burden on my heart to put it into the Mandarin language, but I couldn't figure out how to do it Mm -hmm. um, as a stage production that took place in the United States with all Western actors. And have it meaningful to the Asian culture. But CBN had already agreed that if we could make the film and if we could get it, you know, translated into Mandarin, of course, I, I oversaw all of the translations. And it wasn't just dub. All the actors were dubbed. So the man who played Jesus, it was a live voice. All the actors had their voices dubbed over. The thing that the Lord showed me was that, okay, it's it's a... It's an American production, but it's going to be shown in China. Have some Asian faces there on the front row. So we invited the Christian uh, outreach group at Old, Old Dominion University that worked with the Chinese foreign students. And they had been bringing them to churches and witnessing to them. So we invited them to bring as many Asian people that they could to that year's production that we were going to film. And we sat them on the front row. I said, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to we're going to film them watching it and then we're going to get the testimony of one of them afterwards as to what it was like to be an Asian in America watching a volunteer production on the life of Christ put on by Western actors. So the woman that we that we were led to do the speaking at the end of the play when the message was given, Jody, she ran up on the stage and accepted Jesus as her Savior, completely unscripted. She just ran to the stage and she was weeping. The actors were all weeping because they knew exactly what our vision was wow. and why we wanted all those Asian actors there. And they everybody wow. grabbed her and put their arms around her and she was crying. She later, she said, I she couldn't talk that night. So she said, give me a couple weeks to absorb what happened to me tonight. So later we recorded her for 45 minutes. She spoke nonstop 
about what it meant for her to see a live production on the life of Christ, this Christ that she didn't even know. Wow. And God, he thoroughly worked through her. And then we, we would, we would hear her testimony. She spoke nonstop with no notes for 45 minutes on what that night meant to her and how it changed her life. So we would, you know, we would show her, her testimony and then back and forth to the scenes that she was mentioning. And then we'd show the close-ups of her in the audience. And so that became the B roll, if you call it, or the package that went along with the two and a half hour film. It was her testimony. And that was actually broadcast in China. Yeah. And, and probably still is being broadcast every year. We don't get the reports like we used to, because what happens when you give away, you give up all the uh, intellectual property of something like right. that, and you never know where it's going to go. We also gave the rights to all of the stations in every country that we that we uh, broadcasted in to make their copies, to s- distribute DVDs, to do whatever they wanted with it, because it was all about the gospel getting out. And I held all the copyrights to everything, even the music. So I didn't have to worry about that. Yeah, you just gave it all away. And you know, when you give to God, God gives back in so many ways. He showered his goodness on you in in many ways. And one of them actually involves your house. Share how that came about. When you moved from Canada, you were living in an apartment and you had a dream of a beautiful home. We actually had a prophetic word before we left Canada from one of the pastors. And he said, I see you and Joseph living in a place where there's water surrounding everything. And and I actually see you living on that water. Well, he didn't know anything about where we were going. We weren't even sure if it was going to be Virginia. We were looking at other states. When we flew into Virginia for the first time, all we could see was water. You know, it's a a huge basin. The Chesapeake Bay, I mean, if you're coming into Virginia Beach, especially, you're water everywhere. And I looked at Joe and I said, you know what? I think this is where we're supposed to stay. Um, But there were other confirmations as well. And then... God knew that I always wanted to live on the water, period. And so I had, we had been here for about a year and a half and we had already started with the play production on, you know, that beginning level. A neighbor of mine said, Maria, there's a house for sale in my neighborhood that I think you might be interested in. So we got permission because it wasn't on the market yet. We got permission to come in and see this house. It's just a little tiny ranch. I mean, it's, not even 1,700 square feet, but it was right on the water. It had this huge deck across the back. And when I walked onto that deck and saw the beautiful water and had sunset, we get the sunset every night over the water. And that was another one of my dreams. Mm. I love sunsets over water. I walked down to the back of that deck and I said, Lord, and I actually started crying. I said, Lord, I don't know how in the world we could ever afford this. But I promise you that if you give us this home to live in, that we will use it to your glory for as long as we live there. Series of things happened. It came on the market. We didn't have the money for it. And then the Lord gave me a prophetic dream about it. And I saw I saw him literally pick up the mm. foundation, the earth underneath the house and lift up the dirt with the house in it. And he gave it to me in a dream. And uh, we had done a Jericho march around it. 
just we thought, well, we'll do everything that we know to do and let's just believe for a miracle. Within six months, we were moving in and it's all just one God thing after another. And we're still here. You have used that house for his glory. All of our production meetings, my husband has formed an international Christian coaching organization that goes all over the world as well. He's got trained coaches in I don't know how many countries. Um, I lost track of that. But yeah, it's all it's all happened here. And he, of course, he's still with Regent University. But the side ministries that God has given us both have literally been birthed right here in this in this home. Yeah, it's like an open heaven there for you, huh? Yeah, and we've had so many prayer meetings here, so many worship services, so many, you name it, we've had it here. You love hospitality too. That's another one of your gifts. And, you know, hospitality is such an underrated gift, but it's listed in it's listed in the Bible as a gift of the Spirit. It is. Um, so what have you seen God do through that? I mean, we've talked for a long time about what God's done through the play, but individually, I'm sure you've seen lives transformed even just through the your gift of hospitality and opening your home. That one's probably a little harder to define because um, hospitality is just something you do from your heart. You don't always see results from it. But I know one thing, when people come into my home, I welcome them as if they're the most important people that could step through my door. I want to feed them the best food. I want to be gracious to them. I want to give them the best place seating at the table. I want to honor the fact that um, that they're here because God planned for this to be the house where we would entertain, where we would show our love, where we would share our stories. And we had many fundraising banquets here in this little tiny house when I only had eight chairs to put people around and we would borrow chairs and, you know, we would just feed them the best meal we could, share the vision of Christ. And so that warmth, you know, that human warmth, that no, letting people know that they are important to God. And not everybody has the gift of hospitality. So not everybody can be comfortable doing that. No, it is a gift. My mother has it. I mean, you walk into her home and you just feel like you are part of the family. I mean, I am part of her family, but everybody who goes to their home feels like they're part of a family. So, you know, we have a huge <laughs> family of everyone who's ever gone into my parents' house because they do. They just wrap their arms around everyone who comes in. I remember when we first started pastoring and I wanted to have everybody over for Sunday lunch after church because I just, that's, I was raised in a big family and that's what we did. We all got together after church on Sunday for lunch, Catholic church. Um, and the, And the, they were like, what? We've never been invited to a meal at the pastor's house. And some of them were even afraid to come because it's like, we've never been in the parsonage for anything. But, you know, that, that was then. And, you know, hospitality can be in many forms. You don't have to necessarily open up your home. Sometimes you can just show love in very simple ways, like, um, giving somebody a gift, you know, bringing, bringing over a, a pie, bringing over some homemade fudge or some homemade cookies, or I'm not particularly a baker, so I don't do much of that. But, you know, there's so many ways that we can love people and show the love of Christ through the simplest things. And since COVID really separated so many of us, uh -huh. that is 
I believe, one of the most needed gifts of the Spirit right now to operate, to bring people together, to show them they are, you know, that God hasn't forgotten them, that they are valued in His eyes. Well, Marie, do you have any non-negotiables in your life, things that have kept you grounded in your faith and your calling through all the years? I don't know if it's considered a non-negotiable. I guess it might be, but I went through a really difficult, difficult time when our granddaughter, Jessica, was, she was diagnosed with a very serious uh, progressive disease and there was no cure for it. And she was two, two years old at the time. And by the time she was six, she was in a wheelchair and could not move her extremities. She's brilliant. She's brilliant um, emotionally and, and um, intelligence wise, but her body doesn't work. And I remember questioning God and saying, why God, you know, like, why, why, not just why me, not just why my husband, but why, why, why did you allow such pain and suffering in this world? And I really, it really had a hard time with it. And um, on top of having that disease and not being able to be at all mobile, she went through a very serious operation and she suffered a lot in the hospital from pain from that operation that had nothing to do with the SMA, the disease that she had. It was completely separate. So it was another thing on top of the other thing. And I just about went crazy one night because I said, God, I don't know if you still heal. I really don't know if it's your will to heal everybody that we pray for. But I know one thing, and that is I will never stop worshiping you because I love you. And whether you heal her or not, I will never stop praising you. I will never stop worshiping you because where else do I turn? But I said, you know, I don't know about this healing stuff. (laughs) But I know I will never stop worshiping you. And that's what I did. I just painfully worshiped him through it and praised him through it. And she never did get her healing. But you know, Jody, I'm still believing. And she has been the recipient of what the world is calling a miracle drug now that is actually stopping the progression of this disease. And it's only been approved by the FDA to be used in America over the last five years. And she was the first recipient in Virginia to receive the the antidote for it. So she's on a regular platform of injections with this miracle drug. And, um, you know, so sometimes we don't get it the way we ask for it. Sometimes we don't get it at all. Sometimes we do get it, but God is still God and he's still worthy and he's, he's still so worthy of our worship. So that's an, I guess that's a non-negotiable for me. Yeah. Well, Marie, there are so many incredible women of the Bible and their stories. Is there one that you can relate to more than others and, and why? Who is that and why? I would have to say that it's a toss-up between Esther and Mary Magdalene. <laughs> Two very different Which ladies. Very different reasons. <laughs> but I guess it comes down. It would come down to Esther because um, 
the fact that she was given such favor by God at such a time as when she was given it, that she changed the course of history for Israel and for the Jewish people. And she was, she was born in a, in a, for a particular time, for a particular purpose. And I feel like my life has been like that as well. I feel like I have been like Esther, like God put me here for a reason and I'm just not going to accept no. I'm just going to do as much as I can do, as far as I can do it. So she's been a real example to me because it, it, cost, it could have cost her her life. And there were many times when I feared my life in the adventures that we had, in the places that we would go. I mean, it, there were many, many threatening situations that we walked in. But I knew that God had called me to that. So I think she would be my heroine. Yeah, she was a remarkable woman, and they still celebrate her today as uh, the Purim. I love it. I love the celebration of Purim. Uh, the the gal that um, I was telling you about, who is uh, receiving all of the props and things tomorrow via the via the railway, she had her fourth baby girl on Purim, and she named her Esther. Exodus thirty five verses 30 through 33 is a really interesting passage to me because it says, then Moses told the people of Israel, the Lord has specifically chosen Bezalel, son of Uriah, grandson of Hur of the tribe of Judah. The Lord has filled Bezalel with the spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, ability, and expertise in all kinds of crafts. He is a master at every craft. You see, God gave Bezalel those skills to build the house of the Lord, the tabernacle, And we've just heard how God has given Marie expertise in the arts and the love of hospitality and how she's been using those gifts to build up the house of the Lord as well. Our God, the maker of heaven and earth, has so many facets of creativity and beauty. There are so many ways to glorify him and build his house, the church. And he's created and gifted you, dear friend, with a perfect way to do that too. Marie, would you take a moment and pray for everyone who listens to this podcast story. Thank you, Jody. It would be an honor. Father, you know who's listening and who is not listening, and they may listen to it tomorrow. They may listen to it next year. They may listen to it two years from now. But your word will always be the same, and your word is, fear not, for I am with you. Whatever it is that God has put in your heart to do or to say or to be or to how to function in your spheres of influence. I just can tell you one thing, trust the Lord. Don't put any excuses before him because he is so much bigger than the excuses that you could make for serving him in the ways that you know he's molded you and and gifted you. And don't be afraid of small beginnings. Everything starts small. Look at the seeds that we plant in our gardens. I'm always amazed that I can put in a tiny, tiny little seed and get a great big collard plant or spinach plant. It always amazes me. God's seed in you is good seed. And I encourage you to keep it well watered, to keep it nourished, to feed it in such a way that Holy Spirit can have his way in you. Whatever age you are, it doesn't really matter. 
because God can use you at any age or stage of your life. And so I pray for you today that you'll have the courage to be like an Esther among your spheres of influence, in your family, in your church, in your community, in your school, in the office where you work. Wherever it is, you have influence because the Lord God is in you and his power is at work in you. You don't have to be in a church. You can be in a movie theater selling tickets and have influence over the people that buy the tickets from you by blessing them, saying, God bless you, God loves you, doing something that makes them feel like a real human being who is loved by somebody else and and loved by God. So I, I just encourage you and I bless you. Even though I've never met you, I know you're a sister in the Lord and I love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in. In our show notes at hergodstory.org, you'll find scriptures and other information we talked about today. And don't forget to sign up for periodic emails and download a free six-week devotional book on women of the Bible. It's a great way to start the year. Or you could purchase a 12-week devotional for just $12 with all the proceeds going to help widows and orphans around the world. And join our growing company of women with a gift today to our Widows and Orphan Fund at hergodstory.org. We'd also love to pray with you on our 24-7 prayer line. Give us a call anytime at 855-459-CARE or email us at prayer at somebodycares.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend who might enjoy it too. And be sure to like or follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. And now, dear friends, I leave you with a blessing from Psalm 90, verse 17. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on you establishing the work of your hands. Her God Story is a ministry of Somebody Cares America and International. To find out more about or support the ministry, go to somebodycares.org.